My name is Mike Stacks. Welcome to episode five of the Ugly Things podcast, second part of my interview with Velvet Underground expert Phil Milstein about the first meeting of Lou Reed and John Cale. In part one, we learned about Reed's early association with Terry Phillips and Pickwick Records, the making of The Ostrich, and the formation of The Primitives with Reed, Kale, Tony Conrad, and Walter DeMaria. When we left the story last time, Reed was revealing to the others that, for The Ostrich, he had tuned all the strings on his guitar to one note. This was a revelation to Kale and Conrad, as it mirrored what they had been doing with their single-note drone pieces with Lamont Young. Reed and Kale had effectively arrived at the same point from opposite directions and had instantly discovered some common ground. Conrad and Kale viewed Terry Phillips and Jerry Vance as sleazy record industry, typical record industry hacks. And I think that they came out there assuming this guy they were meeting who was going to be part of their group, who's going to be the, the leader of their group, Lou Reed, would be of that same sort. And when they met him and found this common ingredient, this key to the, the song that they had in common, they realized uh, had to start rethinking their evaluation and at least start to open their mind to who they're working with, if not decide to be that they were all of, of one mind yet. Um, it got them uh, being more open to the idea, to the possibilities. Right. Like this was going to actually be an interesting experience rather than just, you know, a little uh, jaunt, you know, just for, for the cash. Yeah, that something really positive maybe could come out of this. Um, something that uh, I don't think, I think it's premature to assume that they started to recognize that really what came out of this is new horizons in rock music. But that was, that took a while. But if it wasn't for the fact that the ostrich had this unique tuning they might never have gotten to a sense of having common ground. They might have gone through the whole experience uh, just thinking, okay, that's okay. He wasn't a total, well, he was a total asshole, but one that we could tolerate because, uh, you know, he's not a business guy at least and gone their separate ways. But this was an indication that there was potential for something there. It's just the first spark of something. And John and Lou, or Lou, and and John uh, took a cup of coffee together, uh, I believe, within still within the building and started talking. Didn't get to anything very personal yet. But in the course of this mini touring, uh, they started to um, recognize more common ground among themselves than they realized. For one thing, they were born literally one week apart. And um, it's just an indication, a clue that there's something there to be explored between these two. They looked like they're coming from different worlds, but they had uh, the, the, the Venn diagram overlap between them was broader than they first imagined. Right. And both, you know, two very highly intelligent guys of the same age and and it turned out you know as you said overlapping musical in, uh, interests but so tell me what you know you, you talked a little bit about the mini touring you know what actually did the primitives do I mean once they uh, you know once um, Terry had put these guys together and uh, they had 
learn the two songs. Um, you know, how do they go about promoting the record? Yeah, the touring was not to be an extended trip like a proper tour. They had booked uh, weekend performances on about half a dozen successive weekends. Uh, these would be in eastern Pennsylvania and parts of New Jersey. Um, we have some documentation that there was a particular little nexus of top 40 radio stations in eastern Pennsylvania where uh, Pickwick had a promotion director named Bob Ragona, and he had established some relationships with some disc jockeys there. And they started playing the ostrich just out of loyalty to the relationship, I think. I don't know if there was a response by the DJs in particular to the song and to the recording, but they were giving it a little bit of airplay, getting a little bit of response, and that was enough for Terry and Bob Ragona to start pushing this uh, in that area and with the, on those stations and with those disc jockeys. And uh, the disc jockeys names that I've found who, uh, in specific, who were involved um, was a jock named Jay, Jumpin' Jay Sands, and then a station in uh, Reading, Pennsylvania, I believe, WRAW, that had uh, a disc jockey named Harvey Holiday <laughs> and a jock and program director named Scott Wallace were... Um, there, there was a previous relate or, or uh, an existing relationship based on at least uh, another of the Pickwick City tracks called Soul City by the Foxes, a 45, that had uh, made the, the bottom reaches of the charts on WRAW. Harvey Holiday, in fact, they, they went out to dinner. Harvey Holiday, Scott Wallace from R.A.W., Terry Phillips, Bob Ragona from Pickwick, and they agreed to record a new theme song for Harvey with the Foxes singing over the Soul City track. And um, that um, helped form uh, enough of a relationship that um, I believe that they put together some sock hop type performances with the primitives hosted by one or, or two or all three of these disc jockeys don't have details of these performances, but this right. was what the performance primitives were doing. Right. So, uh, you know, a sock hop for, you know, was something that we don't really have anymore in any f shape or form, but it was basically like a radio sponsored event in this case where they would just have a few performers come up and, and you know, basically mime to their records, right? Or, or occasionally play live and they would just do a couple of songs and kids would dance and they would play some records and that would be it, right? Yeah, and they were called sock hops because uh, they happened to be, uh, many of them were on school gymnasium floors and the, uh, the school phys ed teachers didn't want kids scuffing up their floors with their shoes. So to dance on the floors, you had to take your shoes off. Uh, this type of performance still goes on in a way, but it's much more 
uh, much grander where I think there's probably throughout the country where pop radio stations will sponsor a whole day-long festival. Uh, is that still go on now that you know of? Yeah, I, 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 I'm sure it does, yeah. But yeah, they're obviously way more corporate. than Back then it was sort of like, you know, guys loading in and out of a station wagon and a couple of record players. Exactly, but the thing that they have in common is that the talent, well, the talent now, I guess they perform for real or to some extent, and back then it was... Uh, entirely mimed just for convenience, if nothing else. It's just much quicker to play a record and have a few people pretend to have, have microphones, probably not even corded, and pretend to sing their song. But what they have in common with the, the corporate day-long versions today is that the performers were doing this for the sake of promotion and exposure. If you These were favors to the disc jockeys and to the stations. And in exchange for the favor, your songs, your records would get prime consideration and you'd get the exposure. And this was common throughout the country and uh, almost always hosted by local disc jockeys, top 40 disc jockeys. And I believe that that was the format for this type of thing because these types of things were almost exclusively done as miming to the record. It's part of the reason that I stress in my article the issue of whether they the primitives were playing instruments or not. And it's possible that there was a combination, that some shows they were miming, some shows they were actually performing. However, in almost all these cases, they'd be only two songs of a single. That's how the sock hops were done. You get maybe three performers on a bill and two songs each. You know, it's that six, seven minutes and they run off. You play some records and then dance to the records and then you bring on the next performer. That's how these things functioned. And I believe that the Primitive's performance experience fitted right into that format. Right. And, and I guess that was a very, very brief period, really. The, the record didn't go on to be a huge hit, as we all know. So yeah. uh, that probably played out over the course of a month or two. And then they moved on to the next, uh, to the next thing. So let's talk about what happened after the Primitive's, after the Ostrich. Um, there was another song that's, you know, well, there were several of this, but the next one I think is, is significant is something called Why Don't You Smile Now? Could you uh, tell us how that song came into being? Yeah, it actually overlaps with the beginning of The Primitives. Uh, there's a piece of documentary evidence that is uh, quite remarkable, and yet... <laughs> It's a tape recording. Virtually nobody has heard. Uh, it's described at length in a book, uh, kind of a academic book about Tony Conrad's career. The author is a art historian named Brandon Joseph, and the book is called Beyond the Dream Syndicate. And in it, he describes the physical tape slightly and, and and the content on it. It was recorded, it's dated on the tape of December 3rd of 64. And the audio content is a kind of um, jam session slash rehearsal that according to the note on the tape, Tony Conrad recorded it. And uh, on the note, it says that the it was recorded immediately after the same night of their first performance. 
and that uh, the performance was held at a um, a beautiful 1920s deco styled building in the Upper East Side of New York called the Riverside Plaza Hotel, which had been founded as a Freemasons, not as a lodge hall, but as a kind of a hotel for visiting Freemasons. And it had gone through right. several changes of ownership by then, but um, apparently they'd done some kind of performance there. And it's um, in all the quotes by members of the retinue, uh, by Conrad, by Kale, by Reed, by Terry Phillips. They only describe the kinds of places that the primitives, little mini tours performed at was these little small town, small low stakes gigs out in New Jersey and Pennsylvania. There's no mention of something like an opulent, uh, an opulent uh, hotel in Manhattan. And uh, the only evidence of that is this tape. And Brandon Joseph describes a lot of the content of the tape um, that they're running through some songs. Part of what's so exciting about this, this document is that apparently both sets of primitives, the studio primitives who were, as I put it, these white outer borough doo-wop guys, and the performance primitives who were these classical avant-garde guys and in the middle the hard rock and roller Lou Reed and they're running down some songs together and described in there is the ostrich but but Brandon focuses largely on this one song uh, called at the time won't you smile and Lou had apparently written these lyrics from the point of view of uh, a pimp to his hooker, to one of his ladies. You didn't care when I begged you to stay. Why don't you smile now? It's clearly the song that that developed into and that became known as Why Don't You Smile Now. The two primary original versions of it, it was actually developed and recorded by the group that I mentioned earlier as having been in Syracuse, the all-night workers who Terry Phillips had scouted. And um, in some fashions, I don't know if he signed a contract or just recorded them as this one-off, but at some point in 65, recorded this song uh, on its second title, Why Don't You Smile, um, but recorded a, a very different, more refined, more straightforward uh, male-female love-type song uh recorded by this group. It was kind of an R&B group from the Syracuse area, and they made this really amazing, fantastic version of it with this kind of droning guitar that I've been unable to trace, and so again, leave to imagination of how that droning guitar sound by this straightforward R&B group got into their version of this song. Uh, part of what's been so mysterious about the song in that recorded version, it was the first song with uh, Kale and Reed credited as co-composers along with uh, Vance and Phillips. And for all these years, we never knew how did John Kale get involved in writing a song with Lou Reed at this early stage 
We didn't even realize that they'd met yet. Uh, we couldn't understand how this came to be, but this uh, rehearsal slash jam session that uh, Tony Conrad recorded, that's, uh, that's the key. They started working out that song. It next appeared uh, by the Downliner sect over in England uh, on their third album, The Rock Sects In, in a quite different but about equally great version. You didn't care when I begged you to stay, why don't you smile now? You left with me, then you walked away, why don't you smile now? It came out, I think, in April of 66, but apparently had been recorded some months earlier. And another thing that I that I go into that I never quite cracked is how did they... Uh, well, no, I did crack that it was submitted as a demo by the Downliner Sex Song Publisher, and they were picking out songs for their third album, and that was one of the songs they decided on. But what was on the demo is something I never was quite sure of, and I, I propose a few possibilities in the article. It's possible that they learned it from the All Night Workers record and completely rearranged it, or perhaps they learned it from that um, December 3rd tape. Maybe that was submitted as the demo. Not sure. Right. And of course, we covered the downline of sex story in very early issues of Ugly Things. And that was one of the things I was eager to ask about, you know, how the hell did you get a to record a Lou Reed and John Cale song in early 1966 before the Velvet Underground uh, really existed or it certainly had, had any, you know, nobody knew who they were. And uh, they were none the wiser. They, they had no idea of the significance of the words Reed and Cale. They just found this song and thought it was, um, they thought it was, you know, worth doing. They thought it was a good song and they put their own spin on it. Well, a good song and suitable for them. And your interview of Terry Gibson back in whenever that was, a long time ago, I did get a from from you a very good quote that's um, very helpful to to my story that's in there. So even though he didn't know, the quote actually becomes very useful to understanding how that came to be. And from the downliner sec version in particular, it then became revived. Uh, partly because of the the writing credit and partly because of the great riff and just being a very cool song starting in the early 80s, I think. Um, in fact, um, your group, the Crawdaddies, recorded it before you were a member. And uh, what was the very first of that that wave of versions, of, uh, of cover versions of Smile Now? Do you remember? There would certainly be the Crawdaddies because that came out in the beginning of 1980. So... Uh... They were certainly the first to do it, and, and from there, it's become you know almost a sort of standard in the garage scene. You know, yes, exactly. Billy Childish has recorded four different versions of it with four different lineups, recorded and released. And Mo Tucker then revisited it and recorded it with a one-off group she was in with Jad Fair called Mo Jad Kate Barry, and they released uh, a version of it. And and one of the versions that Billy Childish uh, did was with his group, um, uh, the 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 what's the name of that downliner sect? Childish. Um, oh, the joint the, head, the head coat sect. Yes. So, so both that and the Mo Tucker, Mo Kate Jet, 
Chad, whatever, whatever the name, I can't remember right now what I just said of the name of that group, but, <laughs> but they're both these links, the, these more modern day links, these postmodern links to uh, the origins of the song. And it's just had this really fascinating history. There's another great early version that Terry Phillips produced by a singer named Donnie Burks. And uh, really interesting story and some great versions. It's it's been a uh, a stalwart song, and yes, I think uh, a standard uh, within within a certain faction of of music. Uh, it's now a standard, and I suspect there'll be more versions to come. I should just add though that the the downliner sect version, by the way, uh, was yet a different title. Why don't you smile now? And that's become the standard title for the song. Which is kind of the hook line. That is the kind of the chorus of the song. Yeah, but we kind of shorthanded in discussion is just smile now. Right. So, you know, Ostrich, Why Don't You Smile Now? There was other Lou Reed uh, songs that appeared on Pickwick City, in particular on an album called Soundsville. Can you tell us a little bit about the Soundsville album and some of the uh, Lou Reed-related music on there? Yeah, Soundsville album is... Um, all original songs, 12, uh, 12 or 11 original songs by the Lee Harridan Productions team. And uh, each of the songs was uh, assigned, perhaps after the song was written, but it was assigned a theme of uh, an idea, a concept that was in the, that was, that was common for pop song fodder at the time. So the cover will show little segments saying the sound of Philadelphia, the sound of hot rod, the sound of surf, the sound of college, uh, each of those themes being assigned to a different song and having a, say, semi-appropriate illustration for it. Uh, the songs are mostly quite good. Um, there's some soul R&B stuff on there. The artists are given names that uh, just not real names because they're not all real groups. And there's, there seems to be perhaps uh, some performers from outside the uh, four members of Lee Harridan Productions as well because what sounds to me to be black male singer, there's a couple of songs by different female solo singers that are given names that don't appear anywhere else in... Uh, any catalog. So seems to be made up identifications. In fact, Lou Reed sings lead on two songs on the album, and uh, those are both made up group names as well. There's the Beach Nuts and the Roughnecks. Uh, they do a song. Uh, one of them has Cycle Annie and the other has You're Driving Me Insane. And they're both really hot tracks in the same vein as uh, The Ostrich and Sneaky Pete. And uh, someone listening, hearing the album, knowing who Lou Reed is and what he sounds like, it would pick them out immediately. It's, oh, yeah. it, it, there's not much um, uncertainty that it's Lou Reed singing when he's singing anything. Uh, however, the recording of these tracks, um, Terry Phillips told me that he had been hired. His division was there to produce legitimate music in the sense that it would not be promoted as budget material sold on albums for a dollar in grocery stores. 
And yet Soundsville was exactly that. It was ersatz. All the songs were meant to fit within style trends, musical style trends of the time that were popular. Uh, and that was not what he felt he was to be doing there. He felt that was a degradation of his assignment. And he told me that he thought that some of the some of the tracks I should I should add that these type of tracks were used. There were others that were used on other albums. We mentioned earlier that budget albums would have a couple of tracks by stars and then filler. And so some of these same type of tracks uh, recorded in-house were used as filler on some of these other albums. Uh, there's a real good one in the same vein as the four with Reed singing lead uh, that Terry sings lead on called The Wild One that appears on a, what is it, a Johnny Rivers album where it's Johnny Rivers has a couple of songs. Um, no, I'm sorry. It was Ronnie Dove, uh, who was a, a, oh, a yeah. mid-level star at the time. And... Um, so it's in the same vein, but without Reed singing leads. So it's kind of an extension of these core four songs that I write about in the article and that Velvet Underground fans have attached themselves to these core four tracks. Um, and so Terry felt that uh, he was not there to do budget stuff, and yet he came to a realization of... Uh, you got to please the bosses. They want some of this stuff and to allow them to keep to to get them to allow you to keep doing what you want to be doing. Your your real material, such as it is, uh, it's give one for them and one for yourself. So he accepted that. But he also alluded to the possibility that he felt that some of the tapes had actually been stolen from him, that some of these tracks had been intended to be L.H. Productions legitimate releases, perhaps on singles, but uh, had been used at Pickwick and taken from him and, and inserted as budget stuff. Um, we will probably never know. Like a lot of the facts in this whole series of episodes, we probably will never know the real facts. And so I've chosen to try and fill in unknown stuff with suggestions of possibilities. Right. We'll be right back. Let's talk for a second about The Surfsiders. That, that was a, a budget album that came out. The Surfsiders sing the Beach Boys songbook. And uh, it was rumors that Lou was involved in that. And people claimed to hear his voice on that. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Can you confirm any of those rumors or, or refute them? <laughs> Well, the Surfsiders Sing the Beach Boys songbook is a sore thumb in the uh, Pickwick catalog. I should mention that when we say Pickwick, uh, they used a number of subsidiary labels, including Stereo Spectrum Design. Uh, there's several others. And so the, the label names were used somewhat interchangeably. And when we call them Pickwick, they're not necessarily all on Pickwick proper, but there's indications on the albums right. that it's it's part of the same company. Uh, this album and probably came out on three different labels, uh, three different of Pickwick's labels, but it's um, it's the worst 
record that they did. Uh, <laughs> as much as this stuff is, all the stuff on Pickwick is budget material, it's actually competent. Uh, and by budget label standards, not all budget label releases <laughs> by other budget companies were all that competent. But on Pickwick, they are. And this is not. It's astonishingly poorly played and sung. <laughs> I mean, really, it sounds like yeah. everyone uh, was getting hit on the big toe by a rock at the same time or at different times <laughs> on every track. She's my little do scoop. You don't know what I got. Well, I am not a bragging thing to go, but I've got the best to set of wheels. Yeah, you'd think a, a prerequisite to uh, recording a Beach Boys tribute album would be to find some people who could sing harmony and tune, but they <laughs> fell at the first hurdle there because it just sounds like a bunch of guys in a bar or something. And they sound like they're falling, trying to jump over a hurdle, and at the time that they're recording, it's, they sound in pain. You don't know what I got. You don't know what I got. Uh, it, it's for, you know for, for fans of bad music, it's a, a masterpiece. <laughs> However, it clearly is not made by the standards of any division at Pickwick, and had to have been what's called a buy-in, which is uh, something uh, licensed, leased, or purchased from producers outside the company. For what reason can only speculate. Because yeah, you can put a cover on it that makes it that might fool mom into thinking it's really the beach boys but there's <laughs> nothing about it that fits uh the criteria the usual criteria of this company and it seems like it's designed as a joke yeah uh because you know they they had some quality control there as i said not all budget labels did but this one did so definitely no Lou Reed involvement in this well part of the reason for the rumor of that is that there's one lead singer on most of the songs, and it's all, I think, entirely Beach Boys songs. There's no filler song material. You didn't need it because if you're going to, I mean, these nobody's going to confuse these for the Beach Boys. You didn't need, like, a lot of the um, fake Beatles albums would have, like, two Beatles covers, and the rest would be... Uh, it, will yeah. be um, sound-alike type things. And this was all Beach Boys songs. Uh, and I, one lead singer for most of the songs. And there's a different lead singer on Surfing and Little Deuce Coop. And you could squint your ears and imagine maybe it's Lou Reed. And I'll tell you, I believed it. I convinced myself of that for a long time until I was doing this article and thinking and researching more of how uh, Pickwick functioned. And then I realized it's not from their studio. And then I also realized something I just said a few minutes ago, that when Lou Reed is singing, it's never in doubt. And so if you think maybe it's Lou Reed, it's not him. Right. So my conclusion now, I've, I've turned 180 degrees on this, and I, I do not, I believe it is not Lou Reed. Um, and yet, in its way, it's a masterpiece, just not in the way that um, it's not good. But as bad music, it's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. But but my vote is not Lou Reed. Okay. So let's just, you know, we all know what happened next. You know, Lou and John formed the Velvet Underground. But it would be many years before people really knew about the recordings. 
uh, that Lou had made for Pickwick City. So how did those eventually sort of seep into the consciousness of, uh, you know, the fan world and people realized? Yeah, to fully understand this, this phase, this aspect of the story, one has to realize that there were Velvet Underground fans at the time they were going and in the couple of years after they the the after Reed left and the real group uh ceased um it took a few years until there was this whole new sense uh like a baby boomers coming of age and starting to develop this fanzine culture that started to blossom in the mid 1970s and uh so it was in 1974 was the first Velvet Underground related bootleg, and it was an album called Evil Mothers that was on the Sky Dog label uh, out of uh, France. However, it turns out, as I discovered in researching this, it was not an official Sky Dog release. It was released by one of... Uh, Mike, remind me of the name of the guy who's um, the uh, principal at Sky Dog. Mark Zamati. Right. He had a partner who put it out behind Mark's back, and Mark did not want it out. Um, he felt betrayed. It wasn't his project. And not only withdrew unsold copies of Evil Mothers, but um, dissolved his partnership with the guy who, who had done that. But it got out there. There were only 800 copies that got out there in the first place, but then it that was bootlegged. And in the 76, when I started becoming a Velvets fan, I had an awareness of it and got a cassette copy from someone may just taped their copy. But um, that was mostly Mexis, Kansas City recordings, um, basically outtakes from the official Live at Mexis Velvets album. But the Ostrich and Sneaky Pete were included in there. Uh, the person who had compiled the album, had somehow come across the single, recognized Lou Reed, as I said, you can't mistake him for anyone else, and just tucked these two tracks in there. And so that's the beginning of an awareness among this new generation of Reed Velvet fans of the connection to his pre-Velvet's recordings. Then shortly after that came an EP that Greg Turner put out called um, Primitive and subtitled Pre-Velvet. And he had deduced from his own listening those two tracks, the two tracks from the single and the two tracks that Reed sang lead on uh, from Soundsville, put them together as an EP, uh, Labor of Love, because they're great tracks. And not only do you recognize that it's Lou Reed playing and singing, but there is, especially in the solo to the ostrich, but even throughout these four tracks, there is a sense of uh, common thread to the Velvet Underground. Uh, you can clearly hear just pre-echoes of the Velvets in these tracks and... Uh, that one got a lot more distribution than um, than Evil Mothers. And then uh, a year later in 77, I think, came a single from oh, from France, another former partner, or actually it was a, a current partner 
of Mark Zermati, but not with Mark's involvement, and uh, had this really cool blue-tinted cover of uh, Rock and Roll Animal era Lou Reed, and it was on a label he called Obnoxious, and that was the Roughnecks and Beach Nuts songs, the two tracks from Soundsville, I believe. And between these three records, uh, starting to seep into this burgeoning fan culture, we started to get a sense we, because this is when I'm starting to get into it when these came out, and starting to get a sense that connected it to the Lou Reed that was then uh, becoming a, a pretty major rock star and did not uh, realize yet that John Cale himself had been a primitive. But of course, Cale, yeah, though, although Cale does not play on any of those uh, records, to be clear, right? It's only Lou. Right, and I should I should also mention that, especially on the all-night workers doing Why Don't You Smile, as they called it, there are rumors persisting to this day that Reed and or Kale perform on that record, which uh, I don't believe are true. I'm, I'm 95% certain are not true, but there's, there's good reason for the rumor because it's got this droning guitar at the intro, uh, and they co-wrote it, and... Uh, all this and the rumor aspect of these tracks is part of, I mean, maybe you could describe this better than me because you're starting to get into the stuff around this time as well of this, this pre-Velvet stuff and how it connects to the Velvets and this starting to mushroom this fan base for a group that had been musically so great and yet commercially still fairly obscure in the mid-70s, starting to come into what would become, as I described at the beginning of our talk, um, become eventually something very close to a household term. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I picked up um, the EP and the You're Driving Me Insane Cycle Annie single back in around 77. And uh, yeah, it was just another, it was just revealing another aspect of this group that had this incredible mystique, the Velvet Underground. Um I didn't really understand the concept. It, it, you know, there wasn't any liner notes explaining the context of those songs, other than this was something that Lou Reed was doing prior to forming the Velvet Underground. And, and they're great records. They stand on their own merits. Um, and yet, I, I was right. You did say it better than, than, uh, than me. But, but also part of the thrill, especially of Greg's EP, because that's the first one to collect these core four Lou Reed led Pickwick songs in one disc. And uh, part of the excitement also is that it connected them to garage rock, um, that there is a kind of a garage sound to them and that Nuggets and the, and, and the, the children of Nuggets, all those uh, in, independent compilations were starting to gather steam at the time and, and was just building this this fan base for this garage stuff. And um, yeah. so on the one hand, those four tracks served as a, uh, a sense of continuity with the Velvets, but also of a one of a sort uh, with the garage rock stuff, because they, these tracks, those four tracks were designed along the precepts of frat rock, you know, with this um, party sound to them. Absolutely. Yeah, I think we were learning, too, that, uh, you know, a lot of bands and musicians that went on to become famous in the 70s, um, you know, actually had records in the garage era. They had sort of had this garage band past. And, and that's another sort of fascinating avenue that 
that, you know, people like me were starting to explore. You know, he started discovering, uh, you know, David Bowie's records before Space Oddity, before Love You Till Tuesday, you know, his R&B records or, you know. E each one with a different group. Each one with a different group and, and very much in this sort of early R&B beat or, you know, in the cases of the American bands, the garage bands, you know. And, and of course, with Lou Reed, you know, the records turn out to be among the crazier and, and more esoteric, you know, of those sort of pre-fame recordings. And, and they really, they, they're such fun records, but, you know, they're just so groundbreaking in a way. You know, they really were breaking the ground for the Velvet Underground in a lot of ways, especially with that the whole ostrich guitar thing that we discussed earlier. Yes, you did say it better than I So, <laughs> So, I mean, anyway, to conclude, I mean, you, you've really pulled all these threads together in this article and really given us a, a major new understanding of this particular small window of time, but very crucial time in, in the development of Lou Reed and of John Cale and how they first came together. So um, I think it's a really important article, at least, you know, important in, the, in terms of uh, the, the world that you and I and uh, Ugly Things readers live in. This is, uh, yeah. you know, this is something significant. Yeah, that's exactly um, the a kind of dilemma that I had in writing it as extensively as you've allowed me to, which is that I think that this is important stuff, but, you know, it's a limited audience. I mean, the people who are going to care to this level of detail, uh, you know, I mean, I hope that I hope there's a lot of your readers will, but I, I'm never quite sure. You know, I write it for my interest and hope that I'm not the only one. Yeah, well, I th I think uh, I think you're on solid ground with this one. I, I know I was completely, uh, you know, I didn't want it to end when I was reading it. It was just a, a fantastically uh, detailed and, and fascinating uh, story, and and I and I'm sure readers are going to agree. Yeah, well, if you didn't want it to end, then you're going to love the sidebar I'm working on, <laughs> which is basically outtakes, things that I discovered in the course of researching this that didn't really fit. Uh, the main body of the article, but there's some really interesting stuff. For instance, uh, John Cale, of course, came to the U.S. Uh, for a, a fellowship or whatever it was called, a scholarship at this summer music program in the Berkshire Mountains, which is you know like three miles from where I'm sitting right now, uh, at a venue called Tanglewood. And it was the summer of 63, and it was a really important selection. It was very difficult to get into that, and it was under the tutorship of some of the best uh, musicians and composers in the world convened in the summers to work there. And I discovered a, um, a PDF of a kind of a yearbook for that program that... Um, didn't provide a huge amount of inf background information about John, but I got some really interesting little threads there that will be part of the sidebar. Oh, looking and, forward to uh, it. He, it's been well. His 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 residence there, his membership in that summer program, has been discussed and mentioned only in passing. I've never heard much in the way of detail except him telling the story about how uh, he wanted to chop up a piano as his dissertation piece or something. But um, this this PDF uh, provides some documentation. does not have anything, I'm afraid, about chopped up piano, but it's got something that I think will be of interest. 
And it's great just to be able to get some solid documentation about that phase because that's what got him into this country. And from there, he went into, he got himself into New York City and almost immediately did that. Uh, you're familiar with that um, that Satie piece that was the piano relay. You're familiar with that? Yes, yeah. Vexations. A and that is now very well documented because he got onto a TV panel show to do a presentation of it on, on What's My Line. That's just an amazing piece of footage that's um, actually begins, Todd Haynes's documentary, Velvet's documentary begins with an extended portion of that. It's quite remarkable. And from that, he starts, that was his entree into the New York avant-garde music scene and um, got him into a place where, um, you know, we kind of pick up the story. Uh, from there, excuse me, there, it's an important period working with Lamont Young and when when Lou when when John met Lou and started finding they had common ground and decided to form the group together, there's some overlap with him continuing to play with Lamont, but not very much. He found he realized he he believed that the Velvet Underground was more fruitful to his musical interests than than working with Young was, and so he he left one for the other, and the rest is well documented history. <laughs> well, thank you, Phil, for your time. Um, it's been great. You better watch out for little watch out for little the Ugly Things Podcast was produced by James Archer and narrated by Mike Stacks. That's me. You can read Phil Milstein's feature story on Pickwick City and the first meeting of Lou Reed and John Cale in issue number 60 of Ugly Things Magazine, which is available at uglythings.com. That's ugly-things.com, where you can also order back issues, vinyl, CDs, and books, and read additional articles and reviews. Please support us on Patreon, where all contributions are deeply appreciated. Patreon members get exclusive access to all kinds of interesting bonus content, including the 1963 brochure for the Berkshire Music Center in Tanglewood, where John Cale was studying and performing, and a rare 1968 radio interview with John and Lou. Please consider joining. It will allow us to keep bringing you the very best in 1960s beat, garage, and psychedelic music. I'd like to send out a personal thank you to our top Patreon supporters. Chip Lyon, Rob Brannigan, and Ray Brandis. Thank you, all of you, for your support. And thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.